This is a Scrap Studio production and you're listening to Scraps by Electronic Medicines. Hey everybody, it's Jojo. And it's Arun here. But Arun, before we start, I want to let everyone know that Scraps will always remain free, but the production of Scraps is not. We would very much appreciate donations that will be used for the cost to bring these episodes to you. Please go to scrapspodcast.com slash donate to do this for something as little as a cup of coffee or a pint of beer. I know which one's my choice. We want to thank our sponsors, Cortec and Certec Medical, for the kind donations to enable us to bring these episodes to you. Cortec does a phenomenal job with their Brain Interchange One system, which is inductively powered and completely wireless system that enables experiments in conscious animals in their native environment. This is super important. So look up Cortec dash neuro.com and Certec medical can help make your medical device a home run they do everything from active implantables to minimally invasive therapeutics check out their full list of service offerings at certecmed.com then give them a call and tell them the scraps team said hey all right arun what are we talking about today before we start i'm going to do a quick recap a recap to go back to the first episode where we proposed a framework for bioelectronic medicine. There are a few nuances. We did not call or introduce a new terminology like how every scientist or a group likes to brand themselves. In fact, we hate the acronyms and the terminologies. We think it's goddamn confusing for everyone else except the ones who coined the term and used it. Our framework we set out in episode one of the season divides the field of bioelectronic medicine into five verticals. Let me explain. First is the evolution of existing devices. The ones that was used for psychiatric disorders initially then moved to treating movement disorders and pain. This includes the deep brain stimulation devices and the spinal cord stimulation devices. We like to refer to them as hammer looking for a nail. Second is the vertical that provides the world with clickbait and headline-worthy news, the brain-computer interfaces. We do not call them as BCIs or BMIs, brain-machine interfaces, but as musketeers. Do you get the pun? After all, if the world decides to provide clickbait headlines, we at Scraps will do the exact opposite. We love to parody them. Nevertheless, companies in this area have made huge improvements to help the patients to communicate with the external world. Third are the self-proclaimed cool kids who are rediscovering the phenomenology of what the implantable cardioverter defibrillators did in the cardiac space many years ago and are using machine learning and artificial intelligence to run digital biomarker data and digital platform companies. It remains to be seen though, however, as to what the utility is beyond the core disorders that deep brain stimulation treats. Fourth are the non-electrical target practice groups. These folks, and we did two episodes of them, in fact three, episode two, four and five. These folks use non-invasive modalities like ultrasound or magnetic stimulation to selectively target these energy modalities with an aim to selectively target and treat or try to treat disorders of the brain or the periphery. 
While evidence is becoming stronger in the brain disorder space, new preclinical evidence is giving us hope that this could actually become prime time in the future for non-neurological disorders. So go back and listen to those episodes if you want to know more. Fifth is the group that we haven't covered much so far in the season and for a special reason as well. But we will spend a significant chunk of our time in the next three episodes of the series. This vertical is called as novel therapeutics, helps us move beyond the traditional brain and spinal cord targets into peripheral autonomic nervous system and into the viscera with the goal to treat far more patients than what the traditional neurologist can do and have done for the last 20 years in the field. Neurotechnology, the area from which most of our podcast listeners are from, and will refer to themselves as neurotechnologists, I must say, are hugely biased, predominantly towards the deep brain stimulation and brain-computer interfaces area. But let me tell you a dirty secret. Even the neurotechnologists do not know their potential, and we urge them to look beyond the cocoon and understand what they can do beyond just one vertical. After all, guys, you neurotechnologists, in our minds span the verticals and enable the products across the five verticals. So feel proud and call yourself that and explore the world beyond just one vertical. That's the message from us to you. Finally, to the guest of the day. He's a dear friend, a colleague, and to a certain extent, my sounding board. I don't want to spend too much time introducing him. As you will see, We spend a great deal of time talking to him, talking about him and talking about what he does. But I will say these two things. Our guest today is Imran Iba of Action Potential Venture Capital, the one, and I repeat, the one and only freaking VC fund that explores and invests exclusively in bioelectronic medicines. A fund that I was there at the genesis of had an opportunity to see it evolve in real time and we will hit on all of that in this episode. Second, if you need to understand more about that portfolio, you must go and listen to the episode that we did with the second partner of the fund, Juan Pablo Mas. You will find link to that episode in the episode description. But this conversation is to explore things that we did not talk with Juan Pablo. If Juan Pablo's chat was a whistle-stop tour of what APVC does, this is a deep dive into the world of bioelectronic medicine investing. So let's get to the episode. This is an entirely in, in, uh, an audio platform, right? So even though we can see each other. Yeah. Yes. And because you've requested, I will make sure that the video doesn't get out anywhere. <laughs> Perfect. I could have, you know, I could have brushed my hair or something, combed my hair this morning, but it's like, my bother. Eh, grooming is overrated. I know, right? One of, one of the nice things. Hygiene's one thing. Grooming, meh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your hair is looking a little long there, buddy. I know. You said that where I saw you in Florida as well, right? And this is, this is shorter. It's been a little yeah. crazy. No, I like it, though. It looks good. It looks last, Yeah, this is yeah, shorter than year, what it was last year, though. Last wasn't year it? was a little out of control. Yeah. So I've overdone it. I've pulled it back a little bit now. Yeah. And, and in cricketing terminology, Imran basically had the national hairstyle of Pakistan, which is like you know, cr- cr- cricket hairstyle, long hair, 
kind of beard it is like if he just wore a helmet and if he wore the pakistani kind of jersey uh he he he's, he's he can actually just yeah there we go <laughs> it has to be right i mean you wanted to talk about cricket i was wondering how, how long it was going to take you to bring up some cricketing reference as well so <laughs> oh, i love cricket chamindavas is uh, the new batsman Wasimakram's on fire. These Pakistanis, when they have one of these little spells, Wasimakram in particular, boy, they are deadly dangerous. They're dancing in the aisles here in Dhaka. This is a fantastic uh, over from Wasimakram. Mahela Jawadana, just 21 years of age. So nine for two, and Wasimakram ready to go. He's uh, got fielders everywhere, and don't forget he's on a hat trick. And what a day this will be if he manages to get it. The crowd are ready for him. We've already seen two double centuries. Wasimakram shining the ball on strike. Jawadana the right hand up. Akram's on his way to him now. Can he do it again? Oh, he's had a go at that one, and he's got it. Yes, he's got it. Wasimakram's got another hat trick. This is unbelievable. What a day for Pakistan. An unbelievable day for the record books. Two double centuries in the day, and Wasimakram. has taken a, has got a hat trick well it's absolutely unbelievable i uh, love cricket but yeah but you who did you have you had uh you had legitimate you had jared don didn't you or yeah yeah so that's a legit sort of cricket cricket analyst so and jared is awesome i mean he's just doing like i mean i don't know if you've ever paid attention to to anything now that he's doing i mean he is doing amazing stuff uh like he was just starting during covid because he was just Yeah. kind of freelancing and all of his quick info and everything dried up and nobody wanted to employ any any writers or anybody during the time because there was no sports activity that was happening at the time sure, and he sure. basically has his own kind of network substack of close to 21.5 million subscribers yep right now and he basically is just i mean i, I don't know if, if you haven't made a paid a visit to his youtube channel he's coaching now right oh, i will do that it sounds really cool I didn't re- I didn't realize he was coaching to what Jojo is saying so I thought he was yeah. He was coaching he was part of the coaching team of Scotland um mm. the Scotland cricket yeah, team yeah. Uh, until 2 years ago maybe and then he was part of the analyst team for St Lucia in the yeah. Caribbean Premier yeah. League Yeah yeah so it's interesting I love it yeah Great. So I, I kind of sent you I mean look uh, the format is pretty much spontaneous it's just a normal conversation as you probably have over Teams or Zoom as i kind of mentioned in the email and also in the phone the last time we spoke this season is entirely focused on bioelectronic medicines because or at least we are actually experimenting for ourselves to see is this actually going to bring and drive more engagement for the area and also for for the podcast as well in a way such that we can possibly start making it to be an exclusive or probably the first uh neuromod slash bioelectronic medicine focused kind of podcast um um uh, in the future but this is basically a starting testing ground for us so and as a first step as soon as you start talking about details and interviews i think a lot of people just zone out because everybody knows everybody and, and they just but i think it's about just taking the word and kind of spreading it to people who are non experts in the area or non experts outside of the area but also even within the area and you've probably seen many examples where some people are really good at one thing but they are they don't have the expertise in doing the other side and 
whether you're in science or an engineer or even in the investor community, it requires a lot of education. So the way we have kind of laid out this season is to kind of start laying the groundwork in a way such that the future seasons of the episode or of the podcast can all be that kind of more in-depth or people will actually get it. But right now we just want people to actually get what bioelectronic medicines are and that's why we kind of made it into a bit of a of a, of a, you can call it gimmicky or you can call it fun or if you, or it can be like what Jared's original blog was which is cricket with balls right so uh, it can be something like that just so that it becomes memorable and people kind of tune in because it's not science I'm not writing a journal article it's about getting people to remember and engage with it rather than kind of doing it so that's the reason that's the freedom that we have in terms of experimenting and we get the answers pretty quickly within uh, a week after releasing the episodes we kind of know whether people hate it or love it uh which is which is great yeah and so what's yeah and what's your take what's so do you feel like you yourself are now closer to defining what a bioelectronic medicine is it feels like a, a conversation 10 years on we're still having right like where do we draw the the boundary of what a bioelectronic medicine is or isn't not that I, I personally, I actually don't care that much. I find I'm, I, I care less about that than, you know, I, I was I was working on a, there's a new publication as well that's come out on bioelectronic medicines and the, the list of advisors were sort of uh, talking extensively about what they felt was and wasn't a bioelectronic medicine and what would it take to sort of, and, and the audience here was sort of to try to engage more of the pharmaceutical audience as well, like from a BD or bin licensing perspective. But I was like, I don't think, I don't think pharma would particularly care if it's like electrical stimulation or some other sort of stimulation. I mean, at, at its core, like it's the question is like, what's the therapy that you're providing and what are the, what's the results there? So I, I find we ourselves have not been true to, uh, you know, a set definition of what bioelectronic medicines are. So I've been curious on this effort that you guys are going on as to exactly where you're about to end up. And will you once and for all answer the question of what a bioelectronic medicine actually is? Or will we just continue <laughs> so, to evolve it? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a great question, right? And I, I'm just going to take a stab and maybe Jojo can add uh, to that. Or Jojo, do you want to go first? No, oh, you go first. I'm happy to pile on your definition. <laughs> or your perspective. When when we started at, at kind of GSK uh, back in 2013, I think everybody was called uh, the whole area using a verb, right? Which is basically neuromodulation. So, which is the act of performing mm. model or the act of modulating nerves. You don't call pharmaceuticals as as whatever pharmacomodulation or chemical modulation or something. Uh, yeah, it's. I mean, of course, verbs can actually become kind of uh, names and, and nouns, etc. Over time, and history has shown us that, but. Mm -hmm. um, but because the area of neuromodulation originally had become um, very much focused on deep brain stimulation and spinal cord stimulation neuroprosthetics, it was very difficult to kind of get the message out to focus on other things outside the brain and spinal cord, which is basically the focus. So I think the terminology kind of went to bioelectronic medicines in a way such that it would make more sense for the pharmaceutical industry to actually say, okay, you feel bad, you go to the doctor, the doctor writes a prescription, you go to the pharmacy and fill it up. In this case, instead of going to the pharmacy, you basically go to the same doctor or whoever implants the device. They basically see the prescription that the doctor has written, and then they basically implant the device. And that's what bioelectronic medicines are. It basically uses electricity, but really to differentiate it from deep brain and spinal cord stimulation, 
which was in vogue and very commercially successful uh, and to show the potential and show that it was not a flash in the pan beyond just neurological disorders it was basically started as as bioelectronic medicines but now i think the field in the last kind of 9 years the field has exploded so much and therefore each person is calling it very differently right i mean i think i'm 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 not against the term neurotechnology i'm not against the term neuromodulation or other things but everybody starts using bci brain computer interface neurotechnology and then other things right so i think but mm-hmm. everything and again all of that drives that conversation about what is bioelectronic medicine and what's not so therefore we just said it's not so much of a definition it's about the framework of what potentially constitutes bioelectronic medicine and then you can actually then see what what would be this is a great time to actually go and refer to the framework that we defined in episode 1 you can find the link to the framework in this episode's description below so go click on the episode description and open the framework as we talk and then you can actually then see what what would be placed within a given framework and if it's a framework you can actually expand the framework mm-hmm. or you can shrink the framework but you're not changing the definition of what it is it's the it's the biology and the technology that ultimately enables modulating nerve that doesn't involve ingesting of a drug and blood absorption and the traditional pharmacotherapy that's the that's the definition but ultimately it should be treating something and and uh, and even technology like i mean that's why we did the first episode which is to mm-hmm. actually just say this is a framework of how we would define it because it makes yeah. sense from a science perspective from an engineering perspective and from from an investor perspective because you can actually define um and that's something that i want to test drive with you as well because we said there are different mm-hmm. shades uh, even though it's vert- we call it verticals Yeah. These verticals can actually get amalgamated and fused in different ways and each company will probably have a shade of neurotechnology at some point developing targeting a therapy but then they could they may not necessarily be a novel therapeutic but they might actually have more of a neurotechnology focus initially or they might prove something out in the clinic and then drive their technology development etc but at any stage of financing of the company one might be able to def- define what is the percentage spend on each of those arms if the company is sure is in the bioelectronic medicine space so therefore then it becomes easier to define um what yeah. they are targeting and that type of investor understanding is also important i mean not for you because you are a very sophisticated investor in the space but for other new entrance into the space it should almost be like okay mm-hmm. this company currently is a neurotechnology company but it's potentially targeting a disease condition in a different case but where they are right now with your series a funding or seed funding they need to develop the technology and they're going to spend 90% of their time doing this and 10% of the time potentially yeah. building up for the therapy development and then when you raise your series a you basically said Oh I finished the technology prototyping I'm going to test it in the clinic so it's 50% of my focus in the clinic 10% 20% is in the technology development and the remaining 30% is on something else maybe defining algorithms or closed loop or data or whatever that is and then that basically can shift it in in different gradations and it becomes easier to define it and the investor community currently sorry i'm giving you all the answers you should be talking to me no 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 this is interesting now so listen i mean i think like as you're set, setting up that framework i think i i would agree i would agree with that 
I think one of the things that, and it's interesting the way you were describing bioelectronic medicines, because of course you and I remember those early days in New York, you know, almost a decade ago now, right? When we, we were <laughs> sitting down and, and talking about bioelectronic medicines and the roadmap to what a bioelectronic medicine needs to be. Um, but I think to me, like the, it's funny how like I today explain it. Maybe I'll tell you how I explain yeah. the genesis of bioelectronic medicines because we obviously started from the same place and we've picked up on sort of different elements of how the story works. Yeah. But I'll tell you this from a vantage also of sort of how G GSK was looking at this, right? Like a decade ago, right? Like if you remember like a decade ago, the, the, the world of sort of value-based medicine was allegedly around the corner. Of course, another decade has passed and not, it truly hasn't come to be. But at that time we said, gone are the days of blockbuster drugs, right? Never mind, you know, billion dollar drugs, 500 million is the top amount that you're going to be able to get. Um, and if you are going to never mind thrive as a pharmaceutical company, but if you're just going to survive as a pharmaceutical company, when you're only making $500 million per drug, how many drugs do you need to launch every year to be able to, to, to be able to sustain that? And I think I remember the math had been done at GSK and it was like coming out to like eight new drugs approved every year. And then we look back at the past 15 years since the merger of Glaxo and, and uh, SmithKline Beecham, and it was like three was like the top that had ever happened, right? So kind of the writing was on the wall, right? And we're like, clearly we can't, uh, can't survive this. So to me, the sort of the genesis of bioelectronic medicines came from this necessity of broadening out the definition of what a therapeutic is. And I think to me, if there's one sort of frustration, I, oops, I'll call it frustration for the sake of this, but is that even 10 years on, and I think it'll probably be for at least another 10 years, that you use the word therapy and the mind goes to a drug, right? It goes to a pill, it goes to some sort of biologic agent, but it does not think about things beyond that. And that is why we started coming down this path at that time, right? It wasn't, we, ha we didn't have some sort of love with electricity or that we thought that neuromodulation alone was sort of an untapped field, but we were looking to find other ways to treat disease, which importantly, and this is why I always say that we stopped using the word neuromodulation, uh, was because we wanted it to compete with first-line therapies, right? And so existing Canon lead IPG systems weren't going to allow you to do that, and they weren't going to generate the clinical evidence that would convince the skeptics. So if you can make the devices smaller, and if you could make them wearable, and if you could generate high-quality clinical evidence, you would have a bioelectronic medicine and then everything Arun that you said as well would sort of fit into that. But when I, when I peel that back and I say, well, the original, I mean, I get that we sort of took this down this electrical path. We took this path down this sort of idea of uh, stimulating nerves to treat disease. But at its root, actually the question that we were asking is that what are the other quote unquote non-therapeutic ways to develop therapies, right? These like non-drug approaches that we were thinking about. Yeah. And I think in the evolution of how our fund has, um, has sort of developed in the last, especially in the last five years as well, I think that's the question that we have consistently pushed up against, that what are the assumptions that we made when we set out on this, and are these still correct, and what can we continue to sort of pick at, right? And it's been funny how like every, every incremental investment that you can see in our portfolio, I think is reflective of this redefinition of what a bioelectronic medicine is, and so, but... It's interesting to hear sort of how that how that difference of uh, sort of the elements that we sort of hone in on as we as we think about. No, and I think that's that's absolutely true because I think what it's interesting that you mentioned that it's only in the case of uh, everything is what you said is true except in the field of cardiology where you the moment you say therapy 
people will will actually say yes. stents uh, bypass or stenting or pacemakers Correct. or defibrillators because that yeah. has almost the pharmacotherapy and device therapy is almost kind of amalgamated or fused into one such that the same physicians who are prescribing the medicines can also do stuff over time if they are mm-hmm. properly trained and i think the field and i think what we're trying to do with the area of bioelectronic medicines is to kind of make every field or every therapeutic area into a cardiology space uh, that ultimately where physicians can can use or have options yes. physicians have options payers have options and ultimately uh, patients have options because they get to choose what they want when they are prescribed the mm-hmm. the options on table yeah. uh, by by the physicians in in the first place I, I, yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, I think that that model. But is, they're not right now. They're not outside of cardiology. No, that, that's exactly yeah. the point. That's where we want yeah. to get to, right? Yeah. I think they are going to get there, though, right? And I, I mean, I think like anything, I think it is going to take. It always takes longer, but the trend line over even the decade that we've all been working in this space as well, that you've only seen sort of a continuous improvement of ideas and a continuous improvement in the quality of data. That's allowing you to to do that. I think what I, I what, what I'm saying is that's not that's not sort of become dogmatic in our own views. You know, just like you know, just like how perhaps you know when you're having conversations with more classic drug folks, they think that the solution to every you know every illness is a drug, right? This sort of mindset that uh, you know I'm, I'm, I don't know if this is appropriate uh, as an appropriate reference here, but I remember early on in our time when we were looking at, um, when we had started looking at this field of bioelectronic medicines, you know, the area of ablation was a little bit outside of what we were looking to invest in, but we had come across this company in the respiratory space, right? Um, we, can, we can edit out the name if that's, but there's not a whole lot, so you're gonna figure it out anyways, but Nuvera, which is not a company we invested in, but we're really intrigued by the idea of using ablation as a one-time procedure to target the, you know, the, uh, the bronchus uh, and ab- ablate the nerves to open up for COPD, sort of open up deep airways and really be able to, as a one-time procedure, treat COPD. And I remember sort of thinking back to all the time at GSK, because I used to be in business development at GSK and supporting the respiratory franchise for a period of time. And that was like the, the question, right? How are we going to improve compliance with drugs? And I remember taking this idea to a senior member um, at GSK, not because I had sort of, not to say that we were looking at this, but just to say, hey, this is an interesting idea. What do you think about this? And I was like, the, the, I remember this individual sort of looking at this and saying, like, I don't, why would anyone use, why would anyone have this procedure done, right? Like, why would someone have this 30 minute procedure done, which once you did it, arguably you were cured of your COPD? They could not understand that because, and sort of finally reconciled it after sort of humming and hawing about it for a little bit. They said, I guess a patient who has lost the functioning of their arms, for example, if they're paraplegic and cannot pick up a a vasodilator or cannot pick up some sort of inhaler product and place it, that's the patient who would be using, for for that patient, this would make sense, right? (laughs) It almost targets the most worst of the worst patients. Yeah, but it's also driven from this, yeah, this sort of... We can't even think about the idea that something other than a drug could be providing therapeutic benefit. But I think we also need to be careful not to adopt our own dogma of exactly what it means to be, what, what a bioelectronic medicine needs to be, right? We only set on this path to find non-drug-based therapies. 
So I think that's the challenge that I, I, I sort of look at us as well, is to make sure that we are thinking about what exactly is a non-drug sort of approach that we're, we're looking at. And as an investor, I think when we are evaluating opportunities, and, and even as a, a fund that's focused on bioelectronic medicines, I would say that even we are not, it's not so much that we're purist about, oh, this has to stimulate this nerve and it has to be on nerve curve. And that nerve has to be a, you know, has to be an autonomic nerve. I think all those things are ultimately secondary to what is the market this is going after? What are the, you know, what are the options that are available for patients today as a standard of care? And how do we think this, this idea that this, you know, this company or this individual is developing, how is that going to stack up in that world? And that question is, is the question that needs to be answered before, um, you know, we think about how and what the, um, how pure or not something might be bioelectronically. Sorry, but you you said something really interesting though about focusing on a non-drug therapy. It are you did you just close the door on combo therapies? Is that out of the question? No, I actually actually I think combo therapies actually is a really uh, a really interesting area where some of our more recent sort of focus has been shifting in that area. So this may be another sort of um, another topic to sort of develop on, right? I think one of the, when you look back sort of on the decade that we've been doing this as well, we used to talk about this idea of what does the future of reimbursement look like? You know, ultimately these these have to be commercially viable stories that we're looking to invest in. Um, and I think that reimbursement has been one of the biggest frustrations uh, in this process and unfortunately has not gotten any better. You know, last year, you know, the NCIT, the NCIT, uh, guidance that had come out was sort of the first thing that had ever happened that we were excited about in a long, long time. And, you know, unfortunately, that too, uh, that too was repealed. We'll see what, what it replaces, but it sort of sets this sort of environment where reimbursement continues to be a really tough story. I think sort of coupled with the regulatory perspective, which also tends to be a little difficult. And as we talk today, you're seeing sort of the back and forth that's happening between Nevro and Medtronic on their, uh, you know, new, new indication approval uh, and peripheral diabetic uh, neuropathy as well that, um, you know, never ran this big study, was able to get approval. Medtronic comes and gets approval on the same indication based on a couple of very small studies that they had done back in 2014. And that, you know, in, invariably that sort of makes a very difficult environment. So, Judge, a long-winded way to answer your question, I actually think that in some ways, the 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 path that appeals is a path that actually takes us through a drug pathway as well. And an interesting idea that we've we've been exploring more recently is looking at conventional drugs, right? But saying that this drug alone has moderate efficacy. Um, but if we were to combine this drug with some sort of electrical or or other means of delivering energy to the body, that could the combination of those two actually provide a better therapeutic outcome than the drug alone. And if we could do that, could we then build a story around the drug itself and use a reimbursement pathway that is more, you know, the more traditional sort of uh, pharmacy benefits or, or medical benefits approach that you'd be seeing on the drug side. And I think that that is, you know, I think you guys know, and you've um, we've talked about one of the companies in our portfolio that's sort of exploring that idea as well. And more recently, I've been looking at a couple of others in that space, which I think are of interest. I like the idea of of, of using a combination um, therapy as a as a way of getting through some of the payer hurdles. And I guess yeah. the big question is, you know, how do you eat a whale? Well, 
one bite at a time. So the other bite that could be taken that could launch us significantly <laughs> forward is if we find one device, one bioelectronic medicine device, however we choose to define it, that can and will become a first-line therapy. So the SAINT um, trial and... and um, the Magnus medical results that they got and, and the FDA shutting down their study saying it's, it's inhumane to deny or withhold this treatment from people. I think if we can get one or two of those big wins, um, not only on regulatory clearance, but then to push that through to the payer side, then that, that is, is a big chunk out of that giant whale that we have to eat. And the Magnus medical episode is episode two of the season. And you can find the link to that episode in the episode description as well. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I think one of the, I remember speaking to some of the investors um, um, at the, I'm forgetting the, the name of the company right now, but Neurotronic, the TMS company, the, you know, the, the public TMS company that had some of the earliest data on, on the value of TMS in, in major depressive disorder. And this is an investor who sort of has since shifted over to more on the biotech, uh, biotech pharma side as well. But um, they were saying that, you know, we had this great data in, in, in depression and we went and showed it to physicians and we, and, and without telling them what the modality was of this therapy. And people were like, this is crazy. This can't be. This is like, we've never seen anything like this. And when they revealed that this was actually, you know, transcranial magnetic stimulation, they're like, oh, never mind. Like that's that's not going to work, right? Like immediately that sort of shifted, shifted that sort of mindset back into that place. Yeah. There's so much friction against this. It's the this. inherent yeah, it's like bias, right? It's just the inherent bias. Right? Right? So, I'm, but I think that like, yeah, if you, if you bring that idea. So I, yeah. I think what Magnus and what TMS, uh, what the Saint study has shown, I think is intriguing. It's, but it is ultimately still transcranial magnetic stimulation, right? And so I think that today it is better than it used to be. But this question of could you, you know, could you actually, uh, could you uh, actually enhance the outcome of a drug when you combine it with TMS, wh whether it's synced or otherwise, you know, approach, I think could be an interesting one. And if you could do that, could you then sort of couple the, could you then sort of build a reimbursement story around the drug as opposed to necessarily around the device, which might be a path for some of the early bioelectronic medicine successes that we want to continue, that we may want to build. I think just uh, going back to one of the points that you raised at the beginning there, Imran, um, you kind of mentioned that the strategy has repeatedly been looked at in terms of what is a bioelectronic medicine and how should the investments in the area for action potential venture capital should potentially change over time, which I think you've done a phenomenal job of. So to paint a bit more color around the fact that how this transformation has happened uh, and going from electricity as medicine to kind of what I think Juan Pablo, the last time he was on, I think he was mentioning that it's something that APVC kind of starts approaching things as energy as medicine, which is something that we actually adopted when we spoke of in our first episode. Uh, and it was interesting that I kind of did all the transcript of the script and we recorded everything and then I shared with you what this was. And I think we were both kind of going back and forth as exactly the same points that we raised in episode one. So it was a it was a very pleasant accident for me. And I was mentioning this to Jojo and she was elated at the mm -hmm. time. But but sure. paint a bit more color about how that transition has happened. And Just don't call it electroceuticals. <laughs> 
<laughs> and and how um what were the hurdles when you actually um were making the transformations both uh, internally for for you and Juan Pablo as partners um the investment committee to potentially kind of the wider area and also i'm assuming that with abvc being an evergreen corporate fund uh there is also a sense of perception as well so can you just address these points with a bit more detail for us yeah and tell, tell me what you mean by sense of perception sense of perception is that i mean i think my impression and maybe this is clouded by my view of being inside gsk while apvc has been outside of it and i think you're aware of it i mean we've had conversations about it which is that you always have this sense of or you always have discussions about how we are being perceived by the outside world mm-hmm. and therefore how should we actually what we are doing uh is that going to be reflected in the perception of how others might actually talk about it etc i'm assuming that you probably sh- faced a sense of that in a way um and by the way if yeah, you if yeah. there's anything we can always edit out so don't worry <laughs> about it but just yeah no no absolutely no so no so i think let me make sure i can cover all the questions but i think the evolution at at the fund level that's happened in this definition that used to be remember like we said when we when we put up our our billboard and said hey we're at, we're action potential we said we're looking at implanted devices stimulating autonomic nerves to treat chronic diseases that target nerves that are below the neck right that was we were like essentially let's invest in set point that is the definition of the, the only company that was sort of fitting that definition right and then we are like okay well like how do we sort of change from that now the benefit of being a venture fund as opposed to being a corporate entity that is made a massive investment in a device of a particular type or an indication is that you can come in on a monday and you can reask yourself that question that is this what we still want to keep doing or should we be thinking about something else right and so it wasn't that we were deliberately you know every every week or every month coming back and questioning what we were seeing but the vantage that you have as a fund that's focused exclusively on on bioelectronic medicines is that a we were comfortably seeing 90 and consistently i would say 95% of the opportunities we just have line of sight we we know what's sort of going on we know uh what what sort of the commonalities of those themes are we're seeing some of the emerging trends as well and so every time we would sort of sit down and and it's almost it, it's weird how so one probably would have sort of his deal flow and his or uh his opportunities coming to him i would be having my conversations and it's funny how you would see these sort of industry trends that were happening right he'd say oh i just saw this sort of idea and so that's interesting i just saw this sort of idea and they're all sort of kind of uh shifting in that sort of direction and so a little bit from what it wasn't so much that we 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 put a stake in the ground and said this is we will not move from here we just said let's go with where things are going right and i think that let's make sure that we're always investing in ideas that we think have big you know a big unmet need where we think that if we can generate good clinical evidence that we will be able to win and let's not be held up by any sort of other view and as a result of that you know so we made investments in sort of wearable therapies we we've, we've been exploring that idea we went with more sort of traditional canon lead devices as well where they were thinking about uh novel applications and now you've seen some some ultrasound plays that we've made as well and i think that that has always been a very i mean when you ask the question it's like i i can't think of a time when we sat down and said we need to change something or we need to be able to redefine something 
And I think that, uh, you know, to GSK's credit as well, sort of our, our corporate sponsor in this as well, that they recognize that that was the value of a venture fund, right? The, it's the flip of what having your own, own group internally would be, which is you guys should be doing the things that we can't do because you guys can, you guys can move faster, right? You guys aren't sort of, aren't sort of fixed to any one view. So go and explore what's going on. And to their credit, like every time we've brought these opportunities, that's the questions they're asking, right? Like what's the unmet need here? Uh, why do you think that this particular opportunity would win uh, as opposed to saying, no, no, this is, this, this is the area that we need to be investing in. Um, so I think that that is, you know, I think that that is work nicely. And I think to, to your, your question around sort of perception and how, how that's seen. I mean, I, um, I, I don't think anything I would say here needs to be censored. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, um, you know, our view has been, it's not that we said, look, where the leaders in the space come follow us. I think we've wanted to be open and active members of a community that's tried to shape what bioelectronic medicines can be. And so we've played our part. You'll see the companies we're investing in. I think that allows sort of, it directs a certain level of focus. We're involved in, in you know, as you know, speaking, speaking publicly on these things as well. But we're just part of that community, right? We're not, uh, and I think that the things that we focus on, I think hopefully is it sort of elevates all the discussions. And I think, uh, um, you know, I think it's a, sep it's a separate topic in terms of sort of how active or vocal Gal Galvani has been over, over that period of time. But from our perspective, I think it's always been that we should be, we should be showing people what we're thinking about and how we're thinking, thinking about it and see what other people do in that space as well. Yeah, no, I, th I think it's it's a very insightful answer there, Imran. Uh, and it's also your portfolio has also morphed from from being very much focused towards um, the vision that you kind of outlined, which is it has to look fundamentally different to the existing hockey puck size devices or IPGs to something that's a bit more smaller. Uh, the early investments that you made with respect to Setpoint and, and Cala etc. are fitting into that. And then you kind of moved from there into expanding into other disease conditions beyond just mm -hmm. what was out there and almost defining that in the way of axon therapies, HEFPEF investment in, and then moving, I mean, that's one example. I'm just quoting examples off my top of my head to defining more of a platform technology for the type of devices that, that you're looking or you're looking what, to fit into the vision that you have, like Newsbetter. Mm -hmm as an example, uh, to now looking more at expanding the definition out from what the original series of investments was to now looking at energy as medicine with kind of seeding of Alpheus Medical and, and, and all the great things that we actually, um, that Alpheus is doing and other people are doing. And it's also interesting that you mentioned Action Potential Venture Capital, because when we spoke with, with Hubert Lim and Chris Pulio and Mikhail Shapiro, they actually mentioned, and we kind of, it was interesting, the conversation was just going and then they kind of mentioned uh, as a completely tangential question, we need to have a chat with Imran because why are they still called action potential? Technically, you don't need to create an action potential sure. to produce neuromodulation. <laughs> and, and and I think we were just joking that APVC probably needs to have a name change at some point. A, a little branding exercise, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know how many, I would say only... Um, Obviously, a broader audience doesn't always even pick up on how geeky the name was, Action Potential, right? They just, they, you know, the word action and potential in, in, in their own right have have a certain sort of, I don't know, like excitement to them, I guess. But yeah, it's like, it's always funny to, to hear the people. But now that's a more, even more sort of 
that's a criticism of the name saying that, yeah, you don't need an action potential to, to, uh, to evoke therapy, which is, which is true. But uh, well, you, you got to have something and, and stick with it. I don't, I don't think a name change is, <laughs> is it all appropriate? I think you guys have yeah. done a great job and you're, you're going to be sort of remembered as, as the first men on the moon in the, in the VC space for bioelectronic medicine, but you have adapted from electricity to energy you have adapted from um, nerve targets and, and broadening that. I know some of the organ targets are, are coming up. Um, what about any shift from um, starting below the neck? Is there any willingness then to move up above and move into BCIs? I think everything is fair game. So, but I, I, would, I would still look at sort of going above the neck as sort of two separate doesn't necessarily mean that it needs to go to BCI, but I think that, you know, we had sort of avoided, I think this sort of this distinction of, of course, central and, and peripheral nervous system is a little random anyways, right? So I think that we, uh, if the data suggests and if there's a case to be made, I think that there's definitely scope to look at um, uh, therapies north north of the north of the neck and even things like occipital nerve stimulation, right, which is silicranial nerve, but above the neck and it's from a migraine perspective, I think there's some really nice companies out there that have generated some interesting data to support sort of justification of that. I think it's a separate conversation altogether on, you know, brain, uh, brain commuter, uh, computer interfaces and therapies in that space. I think that it is certainly a very interesting idea. I think that there's pro- obviously, if you, if you had no concern for sort of time horizon from an investment perspective, I would say that, yeah, for sure, this could be a really interesting area. But from an investor perspective, where you're looking to make returns over, you know, sort of even in, as early stage investors, we're still trying to make sure that we can make a return within seven to 10 years. I think that when you look at that sort of time horizon, that's about as far as you can make it. Um, even in, in that horizon, I think that's where I would say, as of today, that we look at those opportunities and we're like, yeah, this is interesting, but I think I need to see more more of it develop. But that's sp- specific to BCI. I, um, more in terms of you know the sort of clinical data you can generate. I think the invasiveness of the procedure. I think in terms of the patient population that you can target and how you can sort of build that case. So I think those are the sort of questions. But there's nothing stopping us from looking ab- above the neck. In fact, I think we, we, we actively actively continue to do so. We hope you're enjoying the chat with Imran. But before we go any further, I want to give a big thank you to our two sponsors, Cortec Neuro and Certec Medical, without whose help we would not be able to bring these episodes to you. Because production of these episodes, especially the ones that we've done before, has taken a lot of time and effort and resources. So we really thank our sponsors. Please check out both their suite of preclinical and clinical devices and neural interfaces that is available through their respective website. That's cortec-neuro.com and Certec's website is certecmed.com. Thank you. Let's get back to the chat with Imran. But I, I had a follow-up question then on on BCIs, not not even necessarily from APVC's investment standpoint, but as the field as a whole, which is as BCIs get more attention because they are just media clickbait. Everybody loves it. Everybody loves talking about Elon Musk and how the cyborgs are going to take over and Elon's going to help them, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Truth and fiction of all of that aside, 
I, I see a huge risk that we're facing of this hyperbole sort of tainting the rest of the field. And if we're not careful about how we address it as a community, that the public perception driven by, uh, you know, people trying to get clicks and, and use Elon Musk's name as a way to get people, readers, a little bit of hysteria has a chance of negatively impacting everyone, whether it's mm-hmm. a, a cervical vagus implant or if it's a wearable, especially anything close to the brain. How do you, I'm, I'm sure you get some people who, who ask what you do and you answer and they're like, oh my gosh, you're the one putting the robots in my vaccine. Um, actually, I, I uh, mean, how do, you, how do you respond to that? Uh, thankfully, we haven't had that conversation. <laughs> we haven't had that conversation with anyone, thankfully. But yeah, I mean, I think the, uh, I think Jojo, to some extent, it's, it's inevitable, right? I mean, I think that that's how peop- some people will, will see the news and that's how they're going to perceive it. There's, there will be, you know, even more than that sort of scenario in which people talk about, you know, cyborgs taking over the world, which may well happen, but even more immediate than that is to me, you know, companies that, um, I think the greater disservice that we have in bioelectronic medicines is a continuation of uh, companies committed to, to, to cheap science and not doing the right thing, right? And it's a system that allows them to get away with that be able to get approval and be able to commercialize that ultimately dissuades you know credible investment and credible sort of people or more credible investors and more but you know the the attracting people to that i think that is where we are paying a bigger price of um and i think that we can't do anything about the and I, i don't you know to give you an analogy of another industry where i think this is happening as well and has happened in the past and will continue to happen is quantum computing, right? When you look at quantum computing and the power of quantum in the future as well, like it's ridiculous, like what it can do, right? So now you start up a company today and you can say whatever you want about what this company is about to do in the future. And some people will do that and investors will sort of pile money into that. But then you, um, and then, you know, that hype will rise. And then inevitably when people fail to deliver on those sort of timelines that people are looking at, things will crash. So I think we may we may suffer some of that consequence as well. That's you know I think unfortunately the nature the nature of what we're doing. But I don't know if that's something that we can ultimately ultimately control, or if we even necessarily need to control. Because I think that that aspect of it is just a cyclical nature. It does talk to this huge promise, but like I said, I think to me like the bigger focus and what we can probably have more control over is this community elevating the companies that we know are sort of doing good work and making sure uh, that we're not elevating those for whom, you know, who, who haven't made that sort of same commitment or who, who are trying to find, um, you know, some of those shortcuts, which I think ultimately is, is a disservice to the industry that we're all trying to develop and nurture. Yeah. And I think it's, it's an open kind of invitation. I mean, you don't need invitation, Imran, uh, but, but especially to me and Jojo here, because we, uh, you kind of know me uh, as another brown brother here anyway, uh, use us and use the Scraps platform to kind of what I think we always say, and it's just so organically just came out when we were doing our previous documentary series, which is also kind of filtered into this one, which is, we want to use scraps as a as a way not just to 
do interesting interviews because everybody does it but we just want to yeah. use the platform to inform educate and engage people on on important things that matter and i think we are here to help for to, this is to everybody i think scraps exist only for that reason and and it is basically kind of a philanthropic effort because we spend our time doing it in our in our spare time in the evenings and weekends to make this happen but at the same time we are so committed to making this happen yeah. between the two of us so so it's it's an it's an open invitation for you and and everybody else in the area to kind of use scraps as a medium to kind of get the, get the information yeah. out there get the right factual information out there etc so now i think thank you so much for that really insightful comments on the strategy both of apvcs as well as of your opinions about how things are kind of morphing to and what we should be guarding against another interesting thing which is which is not so evident when people just look at the companies on your website but but someone like me who has actually had a bit of of an insight into the companies the people that you've invested in and also about the thinking over time you've invested sure, sure. Uh, you yeah. and juan pablo have invested in in entrepreneurs at various stages of their career cycle so you've basically uh, of course ideas are important and ideas are great and that's what you invest in because that's what becomes companies and products at the end of the day um but there is also a very interesting kind of diversity in the type of entrepreneurs that you've invested at apvc as well so you don't just prefer entrepreneurs who are established serial entrepreneurs you've done that i mean with with howard and and mark on on axon therapies uh and is is one great example of that but you've also seeded ideas from scratch um some ideas may not have worked out some ideas are going well uh and then you have others who are a bit more established and michael ackerman is another great example right with him doing oculeve and then presidio is a second company of an established entrepreneur um and now you've also taken kind of chances with with more uh, what for lack of a better term rookie entrepreneurs with with terms of uh, alpheus and potentially other um aspects there and more of an established ceo types like with milton morris of newspera etc so tell us about what goes into the thinking um in a venture firm especially apvc when you think about the entrepreneurs uh who actually form the company and how you go about doing this because i don't think there's any one secret sauce here uh, but i just want to kind of get your understanding yeah. on on how you and juan pablo kind of go about doing it yeah and i i think for myself this journey and and i think arun you've had sort of a you've had a little bit of a front seat to some of watching me learn this as well because i will tell you that when i started in 2013 in this space and you know certainly i i had been doing business development and investing in in fund of funds and doing all that sort of stuff uh before that but people would say this and you must have heard this all the time right it's all about the people it's all about the people you invest in people everything else is secondary and i used to hear that and of course why why would i say that's not true but at some level i think i was willing to accept that that wasn't true and that if you had if you had a seedling of a really really good idea like a really phenomenal idea then i was willing to put in the effort that was needed to make that idea succeed because my sort of assumption whether i said it explicitly or not when people said it's all about the people 
was that, well, you're being lazy because you don't want to work with the more difficult or the, you know, the story that needs a little bit more nurturing before it can be successful. Yeah. <laughs> and so I will prove you wrong by putting in the work necessary to take, you know, some ridiculous idea and really show, showing that that can work. And if there's anything that I've learned and, you know, the, um, in the course that is like, I cannot say it enough times, it is all about the people, right? It is all about the people. It is all about the people. And so, you know, the, the funny thing here, like, um, and I think when you and I were talking about this before as well, I think you'd use this sort of this, um, you know, the expression herding cats, so to speak, is it feels like, you know, like, how, how do you sort of manage a portfolio of, of uh, CEOs? But in fact, I think as I was thinking about that, I think nothing about this is, is herding cats. I think that what I've learned today is that my job as a board member, and it doesn't matter what stage of company I'm investing in or how I'm investing, but my job as an investor is to find the right person and, and support that right person to be able to thrive. Because if you are not the right person, it is, um, it is I would say, an impossibility to, to get people who don't get it to start getting it, right? And so that doesn't mean that you need to know everything when we invest in you. And, you know, because you, I know you've had uh, Vijay Agarwal on our call, on your podcast for, for the series as well, right? In the company we invested in, Alpheus Medical. And Vijay comes from, you know, Vijay sort of, uh, I hope he won't be, I know he won't be offended in me sort of describing as this, but, you know, people often caution you against sort of first time entrepreneurs don't invest in physician entrepreneurs. And if and on top of the list of physician entrepreneurs is neurosurgeons, right? Neurosurgeons work in a world where everyone tells them that they're right. They need to be the ones who are right. <laughs> they believe that they are God. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, right. And I mean, in some ways you need that, right? You need them in, in a surgical suite. That's exactly how they don't need to be convincing you that what they're doing is right or wrong. They You need to listen to what they're asking to do. So here comes a person who sort of fits the, 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 the exact, you know, the exact characteristics of someone who one shouldn't be investing in. But what is the sort of commonality between the CEOs that we've seen succeed and the CEOs that we try to back is it doesn't actually matter what sort of the stage development is, but it is the sort of um, it's, you know, this ability to sort of be able to listen and learn. Right. And I think that even if you're a first time CEO, this idea that you can hear from other people, what they're saying, be able to digest that, present a vision of what you are trying to do and that how you can bring other people along in that journey. I think that if you can demonstrate that it's um, that allows other people to, that allows us as investors to sort of back that. I think when investors are dealing with or um, dealing with CEOs or founders who, who are unable to do that, right. Where they are sort of, um, are antagonized by the things that you may be saying are not willing, feel like they have all the right answers and they're the only ones with the right answers. If they feel that any of these sort of things that people feel because they know one thing very, very well, right? Inevitably people know one thing very, very well. And if they're not willing to acknowledge that actually, well, there's a whole host of things I don't know. Anytime you come down that path, there is no, truly, I don't think there's anything that us as investors can tell people to get them to start stop thinking like that and start demonstrating that you can think more broadly. So, so long story short, I think to me, the investing in people means looking for people who, who exhibit that sort of characteristic. And so 
in Vijay, for example, when we started speaking with Vijay, despite all these sort of char characteristics that we said, or all these qualities that we said would be, you know, the, the aspects that would be high risk. Here was a person who was like, I don't know how to do these things. I want to know about how to, you know, how do I think about this? Help me. And, you know, and open to being surrounded by and learning from the people that they're surrounded by. And when you have that, I think then uh, sort of the upward potential uh, is, is, is huge there. So. I have a, a, a quick question just because I, I know of two companies or about to be companies um, that are looking for CEOs because they're both started by academics that for two reasons and for both of them, they don't want to be a CEO and they know they're not the right CEO. So in a nascent field like this, and it's the chicken and, and the egg, you know, you got to have money to get a CEO on board Sometimes you can engage or entice somebody to act as a CEO with some sweat equity up front, um, but you got to move pretty quickly in order to retain top talent um, in a hot, really risky field. So how are we identifying, grooming, attracting, enticing, inducing, whatever you want to call it, new business talent into a field where we know where the promise is, we know where the the expectations are, um, but we need to bring some some lay people, strong business background, a little bit of scientific background, and a lot of passion. How do we how do we get them? How do we find them and, and bring them over to our side of the fence? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question, and I think that maybe the the assumption in that question, in terms of that CEO, is that that is. The singular one person that would start a story from an academic story through to what would be a, a successful outcome. And I would say that that person rarely exists, right? The person who would be willing to engage that early and take the story that far out. So I think for the sort of companies, Jojo, that you're talking about, in this case, if they're sort of academic ideas that are in that nascent stage, what you need to do is find, you know, you do need to have a network of people that looking for people who've had experience in this space, looking for people who've, who, who have a sort of more of a business centric mind or more sort of thinking about how something can be commercialized or how something can be, uh, you know, the clinical development and finding people, they don't need to have done it. They don't need to have done all that, but they have sort of some of those, th those critical ingredients and set an expectation that in this moment, let's move together and take this thing forward. And we don't actually know what the, um, what that long-term future will be. But in this moment, let's do like the next, let's, let's do the next right thing and build the story out and see if we can get that traction. And I think that where I find sometimes companies have tripped up a little bit is when they've sort of made these com long-term commitments to, you know, to anyone, you know, uh, in terms of what that story might look like or where that story needs to go. Um, and I think, uh, you know, a, a good leader also, if you can find that person, to, to, I'm, I'm trying to think of the examples that you're presenting. Uh, you have an early idea, maybe in academia, you may have some promise here. The question is, well, okay, well, what things do I need to be able to do to secure the first meaningful round of financing, right? And so who's that sort of person who can help you do that and how you can do that? But I think that how you take that story forward and what, what um, depends a little bit on not necessarily looking for that person forever. So. I want to make sure that that is sort of the question you're asking, Jojo, because I think that that is, to me, one of the uh, um, one of the questions that one needs to, you know, I think when we look at our companies as well in our portfolio, some of the early stage companies were 
you know, recently last year we brought on a CEO for Axon that uh, that Arun was mentioning as well, right? And the new CEO that we brought on, this is still a company running their uh, on their Series A. Uh, and so if you only said, look, we can only bring in the, like, you know, the Nadim Yards and the people who have done this before and are successful and all that sort of stuff, or, you know, the Andrew Cleland, everything is sort of like, let's get Andrew to convince him to come and do this. That's not going to work, right? If we can't keep going back to the same five people and saying that, how, how can they do that? But I think it's identifying the people who are, you know, as I was saying in my previous, you know, the, the previous question as well, that sort of exhibit those qualities that show that they can actually, uh, they can lead the story and allow and then support them to be able to sort of develop towards that as well, I think is how, um, is how I would. One last follow up with the overall kind of APVC portfolio, and I'm sure you get asked this from time to time. Uh, so we covered, people should talk, talk about just to recap everything about the key messages, which is which is people should, when you think about therapy, people should actually, the goal is to make bioelectronic medicines almost on par with the molecular medicines. And that's what the overall vision is. And that vision is has stayed constant, but the ways in which you execute to that vision has possibly changed with the times and over the years for APVC from strictly going for electricity, minimally invasive kind of procedures to kind of, potentially looking at interesting closed loop and platform technologies to to moving into yeah. energy as medicine kind of um, kind of areas so that's all great and i think all of your companies uh, have had really or most of them who are in the clinical stages have had some really good clinical data um, so far all the way from setpoint to to cala to to Axon in their in their kind of uh, pilot studies, etc., to Nuspera and and everything else, right? So which is which is wonderful. What does mm-hmm. beyond just how well the companies are currently performing? What does success look for APVC? I, I mean, the, as a venture investor, the, the you know ultimately financial returns is the is the driver for that. But are you looking beyond that as a question in terms of what what? It it can be financial and it can be non-financial, right? So the bosses, the investment committees, and the and the corporate strategy from which APVC kind of potentially reports into and um, might be interested in the financial returns, of course. But as as partners in the fund for you and Juan Pablo, what does success look like beyond the financial returns? What is yeah yeah? I think and actually your summary, Arun, actually really captures that, right? I think that. If we had if we had conviction and a belief ten years ago that there should be there's got to be a way to treat disease that doesn't involve a molecular or biologic you know uh, a drug entity, I think we have only you know only more conviction in that belief today, right? I think it is I think it is one of the great disservices that we do as humanity that every time we think about an illness that we think. The, like the mind automatically goes, like automatically shifts into, well, what drug can we sort of develop to, to think about how we can solve this? And you look at this, what, you know, the, uh, you know, the sort of the, the, the behavior, which is that we, we, we make a mistake using a drug and then we we're like, well, let, let's try it again and do the exact same thing over again. And let's make that same mistake over and over and over again. Right. Jojo, you were talking about earlier about sort of like thinking about brain centric, uh, or, you know, above the next sort of therapies, I think one of the biggest areas where bioelectronic medicines is going to win 
is in Alzheimer's and dementia, right? I think that this assumption that uh, therapies, and I say that within my broader definition of what a bioelectronic medicine is, but this assumption that we're going to have drugs, you can see sort of how that story with Biogen uh, more recently is sort of evolving as well. But this sort of desperation for finding a drug that can do this thing, which maybe a drug will never be able to do. And why is it that as soon as we think about how we're going to solve any disease, we're always thinking about it from a drug. So I would say, Arun, to your question, what at its core, let, let's put the, the financial returns and all that stuff to the side. At its core, if we can contribute in some way to start shifting the discussion so people do not immediately think about drugs as the, as the problem to all, to all uh, uh, illnesses, I think we're making progress, right? I think that's where we are doing something and we've contributed something. So finding these companies and, you know, you know them, right? And you know these companies in Nuspera Medical with, you know, antimuscarinics with all the side effects that antimuscarinics have. If you had a minimally invasive approach to overactive bladder to Cala, I mean, Cala is a great example of essential tremor, right? Deep brain stimulation works. And then you've got benzodiazepines and you've got like a ridiculous cocktail of drugs that you would take and say, why am I taking this, this, you know, uh, and then you've got a risk-worn device that can solve this as well. So every company that we look at and that we've invested in is going after a problem today that we don't even think twice about prescribing these horrific drugs to people and saying, well, that's the cost of taking this drug and the side effect that you're going to feel, right, is, um, is, is, is insanity. So to me, so that is success is for bioelectronics and for our fund is, is to change that mentality and to be able to contribute to that. I think that's where that's and where plus adherence is a huge, huge, huge factor, right? Because when you have an implanted device, you don't have to think yeah. twice unless you have to actually have to manually switch it on. And if it's something yeah. as debilitating as sleep apnea or something where it affects your mood the next morning, your cognition the next morning, etc., people will turn it on. But I think you and I have been in yeah. that situation before and part of the analysis in the early days, and this is probably true of every pharmaceutical company that's out there, you can, uh, and I think the classic poster child for this is diabetes. So you can get an anti-diabetic drug to the market. Uh, you can get it, you can, all the payers will pay for it. And then at the yeah. end of 12 months, uh, close to 60% of the people will basically stop taking the new medication. Uh, yeah. Not because it's too expensive. It's because of the fact that they just can't be bothered to take medication every single day. Yeah. It's the adherence and the compliance, yeah. which the devices, if it's as good and if it's able to generate the data that it's as good as, as the standard of care currently, or even better in some cases, then you're basically taking the compliance yeah. and the adherence aspect out uh, from from the Patients if you're not having an impact on the quality of life of a patient because the diabetic and the patient with hypertension isn't actually feeling their hypertension, right? It is hard to get patients to comply. And I, you would not solve that problem by having a wearable device replacing a pill, right? You would just introduce a new problem for them. And I completely agree, for, especially for, for, for conditions where a patient is not going to experience a quality of life improvement. Uh, in a meaningful period of time, those patients having, that's the added benefit of sort of a device that does it for you and you don't have to think about it. I think for anything where you where you do have a benefit, where the patient will know that they're having a benefit, the reason why compliance often struggles is because of those side effects, right? Like the, I'll take this drug, but man, this drug makes me feel lousy, right? So I know I'm able to, like this aspect of my depression, I feel better about, but these are all the long list of side effects that I now need to contend with. But if you can show that you can solve for that as well, 
I think you're definitely going to see a greater level of compliance. It's, you know, I think they, uh, it's sort of human, human behavior, but I think that, you know, I think that, uh, to me, um, I, I find myself correcting people. I used to sort of like ignore it before and just say that uh, this is just the way that people use this language, right? Like we'll often work with other, we'll talk to other investors and they'll say, oh, we're, we invest in therapeutics. We don't invest in devices. And I'm like, you can do that, but devices also are therapeutics. I just want you to know that the yeah, definition should be capturing all of it. What you're saying is that you are you're investing in, in, in drugs, right? Like, so I get it. That's, that's, that's what you do, but, but uh, um, you know, uh, a, a device can also provide therapy. So, yeah. So I, I really like your connection to Alzheimer's in particular because that is a network problem, right? And if you think like standard networking um, illustration would be a computer network that's full of wires and electricity, and everything has to be timed just right, and the communication goes into in into multiple outputs in different directions, different timing, whereas a biologic is more like a flood and, and it, it covers the entire body and you don't want to mix a flood. Y you don't, you don't flood a network that, I mean, bringing, bringing in a cascade of water or biological um, changes to an electrical network doesn't fix the problem. All it does is sort of yeah. change the flow of energy temporarily and it's not going to fix anything. You need electricity to fix electricity, however you're generating it, whether it's whether it's electrical, optical stimulation, whatever the, you know, we'll leave that side that part to the side, but um, yeah. opening a dam to to fix a network doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. Yeah. That that's true. I mean, I think that's true of it's certainly true of Alzheimer's. Yeah. Alzheimer's dementia, but to, earlier to depression and any sort of mental health disorder this sort of let, let us flood the brain with some neurotransmitter in the hopes that, that will have some sort of long lasting. It's like almost seems counterintuitive as to why you would even think that that, that would be the case. But, um, but no one questions that, right? Because it is how like the ease with which people will take SSRIs and not think twice about it is, is impressive in some ways. Right. And yet we'll, you know, uh, a device like a, you know, um, companies that have developed even these non-invasive like dorsolateral prefrontal cortex stimulation devices using transcranial direct stimulation. Like, yeah, like maybe not enough energy is being delivered to, to, to the target location. We can think about how to improve that, but the idea of selectively sort of picking a location as opposed to bathing the brain talks to what you're talking about, Jojo, which is that the brain is connected, right? And so if I'm having an effect here, it should have this sort of a cascade as opposed to let me just, yeah. I mean, just bathe everything in a drug and see what, you know, ho hopefully the, the area where I want to elicit a response gets one. So, but yeah, very much agree with that. Yeah, I think we covered it all. I think uh, if there's any follow up or something, I will let you know, Imran. But I think we kind of covered everything on uh, and kind of stayed out of controversy yeah, yeah. as well. We del I deliberately tried to <laughs> craft questions in a way such that it wasn't explicit or, or it wasn't kind of... Okay. I don't, I don't know why you would stop now. No, <laughs> there's no need. You're taking on NIH. You're taking on. Yeah, I'm. I'm happy to say, I'm. Yeah, I'm. This, this is all coming out in the edits, by the way. <laughs> the, 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 this conversation is coming out yeah. in the edits. Anyway. I was going to call you out on that, by the way. The uh, but the your your criticism of the NIH's uh, innovation prize or the what do they call it? Um, Neuromod the, prize. The, yeah, the Neuromod prize. Yeah, I saw your. Uh, 
their criticism. But I actually, compared to what GSK had done, I actually give this particular program more, obviously it's a bigger check, but it's actually trying to push the story clinically, right? The innovation prize that GSK had launched was very much about early, you know, early preclinical studies and how we can get, you know, how we can get a device that's going to help that preclinical studies. We made an assumption that we needed to do that. And to do that would be opening up the world of bioelectronic medicines. I think what we've been able to show is actually you can do all that and it doesn't really matter. You need to show that this works clinically. Yeah. And so, you know, you can skip over that. So I, you know, but yeah, since you're picking a fight with everyone anyways, I was like, I'll, I'll let it ruin. Oh God, I'm not <laughs> picking any fights. Uh... <laughs> but I'm happy to say anything controversial if you, if, 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 if there was something controversial to say, but uh, I mean, I think that uh, no. you and I talk, you know, my views on these things, but um, you hopefully can sense where my passion and sort of the areas that are more important, uh, more important to us as well. But uh, no, yeah. and you know me, and and and, and, I'm, and I'm not con I'm not controversial. I just <laughs> tend to have opinions that sometimes can be misinterpreted as controversial. Yeah, it's always in others. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, it's not my fault. Yeah, no, yeah, ruin your yeah. You're the both of you guys. I mean, honestly, this. Uh, uh, this, the fact, this effort that you're doing, I saw what you did on the, on the psychedelic side as well, but the effort that you're doing here, hopefully this will, will pay off. This is exactly the sort of thing that we need to be doing to, um, you know, it's a long journey, right? I think that, that if anyone had a hope, uh, that we would, you know, start this and two years later, we would have sort of reached the summit, I think is, is naive, right? So we're not, we're not, we're nowhere close to being done here. There's a lot of work to be done, but this sort of stuff uh, absolutely helps with that. So thank you so much for your, for your service. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. So that was a conversation we had with Imran Iba of Action Potential Venture Capital, partner at GlaxoSmithKline's venture fund that exclusively focuses on bioelectronic medicines. Hope you appreciated the nuances and the personal side of what investors are, sound like, and appreciate Hope you got to know an investor personally through this conversation. APVC, as Action Potential Venture Capital is known, and the partners Imran Iba and Juan Pablo are very patient listeners and do incorporate learnings in a very agile way than any other venture fund or partner that I have interacted with. Go check out their website. Link is in the episode description. If you want to hear more about their investments, you need to go check out Juan Pablo's episode that is available from season two, same time last year. Finally, a huge thanks to our sponsors, Cortec Neuro and Certec Medical for their support of a production. Mr. Swaminathan Thiringyana Samandam was our sound engineer who performed the mixing, mastering and sound design for the episode. If you liked what you heard, please go and check out the other episodes this season and please shout from your LinkedIn or Twitter rooftops and please tag us to help us spread the word. We do this for you.